We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new Sox Machine Podcast episode. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, March 6th, 2023, as we bring you a new episode. Today, we continue our 2023 White Sox position previews, looking at first and third base. Is Andrew Vaughn ready to take the torch from Jose Abreu this year? Can Yohan Makata bounce back after his dismal offensive season in 2022? And what will the White Sox do with Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger? We'll try to answer those questions, play a little over-under as well later in the show. Plus, Jose Abreu spoke about him leaving the White Sox, which those comments certainly caught a lot of attention. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, before we get into those topics, uh, there's just a, a couple of news items regarding the Chicago White Sox as mm-hmm. Major League Baseball on Sunday released a statement concerning their investigation of starting pitcher Mike Clevenger. And the commissioner's office wrote, quote, the office of the commissioner of baseball has completed its investigation into allegations against Chicago White Sox pitcher Mike Clevenger. The comprehensive investigation included interviews of more than 15 individuals, in addition to Mr. Clevenger and the complaint, as well as a review of available documents such as thousands of electronic communication records. The office of the commissioner has closed this investigation and burying the receipt of any new information or evidence The office of the commissioner will not be imposing discipline on Mr. Clevenger in connection with these allegations. As a part of his path forward, Mr. Clevenger has voluntarily agreed to submit to evaluations by the joint treatment boards under the collectively bargained policies and to comply with any of the board's recommendations. Major League Baseball will continue to make support services available to Mr. Clevenger, his family, and other individuals involved in the allegations. And Mike Clevenger did pitch for the White Sox today. He was part of the B-Squad game against Los Angeles Dodgers. That was not televised. He struck out three and two innings on 43 pitches, and he allowed a home run uh, and two runs in total. And his first Cactus League start that could be televised is either going to be against the Chicago Cubs on Friday, March 10th, or against the San Diego Padres, his former team, on Saturday, March 11th. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, 
the longer the investigation went on, and given that it was a very long investigation, uh, dating back to last summer, I kind of had the feeling of like when watching a replay of a close call trying to be overturned, they look at it and look at it and look at it. And you think the longer they look at it, the just harder it is to come up with a decisive action against the play. And it kind of came to the same that came to mind here watching, you know, this investigation like unfold and, and last into uh, spring training. And just, you know, you would think if they had something, you know, they would they would have, uh, uh, you know, dropped their hammer on them. But for now, it's just kind of this, you know, unclear resolution. It's, it's clear enough in the sense that there is no disciplinary action. Unclear in the sense that, you know, he has volunteered uh, for treatment if treatment is recommended. So uh, on the spectrum of like completely cleared and exonerated to like, a case where just Major League Baseball looked at it and just saw a complete mess on both sides and just could not determine, uh, you know, who is the more reliable narrator and said, like, we, you know, there's no criminal charges. We can't really go forward with it. Hard to say. So, you know, just a case where it's messy. It's a, it's a hell of a way to start a White Sox career. Um, and it's, you know, an unnecessarily divisive signing, I think, uh, similar to the Tony La Russa thing, just starting on a wrong foot. And, you know, you just hope that everybody gets through the year with no other embarrassments and uh, you know, we're, it, everybody's able to turn the page on it. Don't suck. That's my advice. Don't suck. Cause if you suck, you are definitely going to hear it very loud. In other news for the White Sox on the roster side, following the spring training game against the Los Angeles Dodgers, which the White Sox lost eight to four, Lucas Giolito did make that start. Fastball velocity was about 92 to 93 miles per hour. The changeup looked good, but he got beat on the fastball. Mookie Betts hit a home run. He also Giolito also allowed an RBI triple as well off of the fastball, but the velocity was 92-93 at his first start. We'll see what happens in his following starts during spring training. But the White Sox optioned Jonathan Stever to Charlotte, and we talked about Stever the last podcast episode mm-hmm. in my rant about the lack of stat cast data. Him throwing 91-92 is a concern, so not a big surprise that Stever has been optioned to Charlotte already. And the White Sox have reassigned Sean Burke, Matt Thompson, Luis Mieses, Colson Montgomery, and Evan Skog to the minor league camp. We'll probably see these guys later towards the end of spring training, uh, so this is probably the not the last time we see all these guys play in spring training games, but with these reassignments, the White Sox currently have 60 players in spring training camp right now. Yeah. I think Burke was really the only surprise and more because like, uh, he seemed to fare okay, given that he could factor into the pitching depth, you know, should disaster strike, you know, he might be towards the front of the line for filling in starts. He figured they might want to see one or two more turns to see what he has to work on. But otherwise, yeah, just, it seemed like pretty chalk in terms of uh, the first ones down. Well, we're going to be seeing Dylan Cease pretty soon, and we should be seeing Michael Kopech. We're getting to the point in spring training where the page turns, where it's a bunch of guys early that we don't even know if they're going to pitch at all in the major leagues to, all right, now we're getting serious. Now it's time to see how Giolito throws at his second turn and where his velocity is and gauging if everyone is healthy enough to at least try to attempt going 75 pitches in their first start, either against the Houston Astros or the San Francisco Giants to start the season. So we're, we're inching closer to there, but yeah, Sean Burke, as you mentioned, I mean, the curveball looked good, even though it's Arizona and breaking pitches don't fare too well uh, down in Arizona. So, so far Mm -hmm. so good, I think from Sean Burke and 
We even got a chance to see Colson Montgomery. And like I mentioned, we'll probably see these guys later on, but the, the guys that were not going to be factors in making the team have already been reassigned. All right, so those are the news items for the Chicago White Sox. Let's talk about Jose Abreu. Mm-hmm. So Steve Greenberg of the Chicago Sun-Times, he wrote an article about Jose Abreu. He's got one coming out also in the Sun-Times about Wilson Contreras uh, leaving the Chicago Cubs for the St. Louis Cardinals. So very similar stories here. Well-beloved players, big personalities, voices that media gravitated to in the clubhouse for years for the respective teams, and both of them have left Chicago. And when it comes to Jose Abreu, he was obviously asked about what happened in his departure from the White Sox and signing with the Houston Astros and his thoughts about the 2022 season. And there are two quotes to zero in on. And the first quote, Jose Abreu said, quote, sometimes when you're at a place where maybe you're not being respected to the point where you think you should be, you just have to go somewhere else, end quote. Mm-hmm. Not off to a great start. And then talking about the White Sox clubhouse, Abreu said, I think sometimes talking about the past can bring a lot of animosity. But I think the best way I could put it is that just that we weren't a real family. And I'm hoping maybe the White Sox get to a situation where a lot of the guys there that do deserve to be in a good situation, they could have it there and be able to win. But I don't really have too much more to say about that. And then he followed that up with on the difference between the White Sox and Astros and that he noticed immediately the Astros have a family atmosphere and he can understand why the Astros have been so good in recent years. And he has not been with the Astros for very long. So uh, they have made a quick, uh, very impressive first impression on Jose Abreu, Jim, the Houston Astros. All right, Jim, you wrote a column about this on Saturday, and I think a lot of attention when Abreu made these comments and they were posting the Sun-Times, and even I had a Twitter space as well on Friday when they were released. The word disrespected mm-hmm. that he brings up, any clue in why he feels disrespected by the White Sox? I would say, you know, without knowing the inner workings of negotiations between the White Sox and Abreu, like the tone had shifted before the season. So you can't even necessarily say that it was entirely due to the way the White Sox unraveled in 2022 and the way that uh, Tony La Russa, you know, and, and his administration just had really poor communication and all the players who, you know, played injured and all the strange calls and on and on and on. Like, even before the season, like he was approaching it with a different tenor than the last time he was about to reach for agency where he's going to say, you know, he's going to resign himself no matter what. Like, so I assume like, you know, one case he had good conversations about what's possible after the season. So he's very enthusiastic about it. And then the next time around the white Sox were leaning towards Andrew Vaughn. They still had to see what like Aloy Jimenez would, uh, you know, look like and, and where he would fit. And so, you know, they probably looked at the, the depth chart and said, like, oh, you know, there are better uses of uh, $17 million for this team. You know, and, and, you know, perhaps that's a case where, you know, somebody who gave the White Sox as much as Jose Abreu gave them. Uh, you know, I could see it being a case where, like, you know, 
it's a business decision that hurts. And it does feel like being disrespected, especially when Andrew Vaughn really hasn't accomplished anything yet. When, you know, Jimenez has many plate appearances over the last two years or, or fewer plate appearances over the last two years that Abreu had in 2022 alone. Like, you know, he's been the one showing up to the post every day and producing and playing through pain and everything. And uh, the White Sox failed him. And so I can see it being a case where like they failed him and they didn't offer him, you know, a worthwhile deal during or after. So like, you know, I can't imagine being a little bit hurt, but then when you read his comments about like where the White Sox went wrong and what he sees in the Astros already, you do think a little bit, why am I mad? <laughs> Once you see how good another team has it, maybe think like, oh, you know, maybe I should have looked around sooner versus, you know, re-signing myself, quote unquote. So that's kind of what I thought maybe, you know, as he goes into the year, especially if he produces. And one of the other uh, fascinating things I, th I saw in the story was that the Astros are working on him getting the ball off the ground in situations where there might be a double play, which, you know, we've talked about plenty of times. And, you know, I sure, I'm sure the White Sox talked about it. I don't just don't know if the White Sox had a plan of, you know, delivering information, whether about, uh, pitches he's facing or about swing mechanics uh, that uh, combine for him to hit in so many double plays and just couldn't solve it. But uh, it seems like the Astros have that front of mind, whether it make a difference, I don't know. But now I'm, you know, I was interested already in how a is going to fare. Now I'm going to be even more interested to see if like there was a tweak that gets him back to that 25, 30 home run power versus the 15 homer power that, you know, I think made him expendable. Cause I think if he had another 30, 100 season, you know, you could see a clamoring uh, for the White Sox to re-sign Abreu. And even the White Sox might have felt more compelled to sign Abreu. But when he topped out at 15 homers uh, last year, uh, that could be the start of like a gentle decline. And uh, you have to hit homers at guaranteed right field. And he didn't quite hit them enough. So, uh, yeah, that's it's uh, going to be... Uh, fun watching them, you know, as much as it's going to be, you know, not fun to watch them in the Houston Astros uniform specifically, it's going to be fun. Like as a baseball fan, wanting to know how different teams might alter the trajectory of a player's career or, you know, reverse a decline just to see how it happens. Now, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, I, I guess I'm and, and fascinated by like, you know, looking at his data every so often to see like what's, what's going on, whether he's changed or whether like the Astros just, you know, can't, uh, reverse time. So my concerns when Jose Bray made these comments, one, the White Sox need to do a better job as a franchise breaking up with players. With other organizations, over 20 years, they've had many different GMs and many different changes in front office personnel mm -hmm. that you can't make this same type of argument, but you can with the White Sox because they've been together for 20 plus seasons. Frank Thomas, Ozzy Guillen, Chris Sale, Jose Abreu. Like, why do some of the most important players and personalities and personnel that have been part of the White Sox, why do they feel disrespected by the mm -hmm. organization? Like, that's something internally they need to kind of look at themselves and see if they could avoid. Because, and as I mentioned, I, I hosted a Twitter space on Friday, mm -hmm. and one of our friends, Colin, from England, across the pond, I think he made a really good point, and his point was, if the White Sox make it to the postseason in 2023, Jose Abreu's words carry no weight. If mm -hmm. the White Sox don't make the playoffs in 2023, his words carry a lot of weight, 
of what was going on in the clubhouse and what still might be going on in the clubhouse. Because my chief concern is Jose Abreu is not on an island when it comes to feeling this way about the Chicago White Sox. And if he's not the only one that feels this way about the organization and how things have been ran, there are current players that are going to be coming free agents very soon. Mm-hmm. After this season, it's Lucas Giolito and Yasmani Grandal. And the White Sox can get out of the contracts of Lance Lynn and Liam Hendricks for $1 million. And then the following year, you start getting to the club options of Aloy Jimenez and Yohan Mercada. And then after the 2024 season, suddenly Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech are going to be approaching free agency. And if your players in the current clubhouse are not particularly happy with how things are ran, or they are seeing that the grass is greener elsewhere in the major leagues because players do talk, Mm -hmm. that is not going to help the Chicago White Sox if players like Jose Abreu, one of the most respected players in all of Major League Baseball, everyone in Major League Baseball loves Abreu and admires his work ethic and the way he carries himself on the field. If Jose Abreu feels disrespected by your free agency, I cannot imagine that helps you in any conversation with future players when it comes to free agency. So if there's anything that you need to nip in the bud now Mm -hmm. uh, to clear any bad air, this would be one of those times to help you out in the near future. But again, if they win, then everything's hunky-dory as long as you continue to win. If you yeah. don't win, then this Jose Abreu may not be the only one bringing these points up. <laughs> you get to the point where, you know, Rick Hahn should be fired for like the, the third or fourth time. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it all comes back to that, you know, and Kenny Williams too, like, you know, just the entire hierarchy the White Sox have, you know, should be overhauled thoroughly. But I think the one counter I would have to that is that, you know, I think part of the reason why Abreu might be stung or why the White Sox have a hard time breaking up with players or why, you know, people get sore. Like I remember the same things or not same things, but like same discontent being sounded about Jeff Luno when he was, you know, um, overseeing the Astros and saying like, what an impersonal, uh, brand of McKinsey style management he brings to the, the team. And I just feel like a number and I feel completely interchangeable. And, you know, they had the, the, you know, George Springer didn't sound happy with the, the way his extension talks went and the final years of his arbitration went, uh, you know, when they uh, got rid of Bo Porter, he was sore about it. You know, some other guys, you know, felt really uh, frustrated about the way the Astros went about their business, but they won. They had standards. They had, you know, a certain way of doing things. Eventually the, the success won out. And with the White Sox, they're not successful and they don't really change much. So I think anytime a player is changed, it feels like punishment. Like I'm thinking like Dallas Keuchel last year when they uh, DFA'd him, you think, okay, the status quo is unacceptable. Uh, heads are starting to roll. And then like his head was the only one that rolled. And you know nobody else changed. You know, you know no managers got fired. The hitting coach stayed the entire time. Um, you know, Injured players played. There wasn't really any kind of evidence that anything else was um, unsatisfactory with the way they're going, aside from the win and loss record. And so, you know, Keuchel can be a little bit sore, and maybe you know there were there were uh, suspicions that he was the one leaking to uh, reporters about just the 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 clicks in the clubhouse, and you know perhaps that's 
true with the way, you know, maybe Abreu has verified that a little bit by saying that they weren't a family. But, you know, just it's a case where he sounded sore about it. But after a while, when he realized like he's the only starter who's faced consequences, really, uh, you can understand why that he might take it a little bit more personally than like, oh, they overhauled four spots and rookies are getting a shot because they're showing some life and they're just, you know, trying to, uh, jettison all the dead weight in, in hopes of, uh, you know, getting this thing back above, uh, uh, you know, the surface line. So that's why I think, you know, that these, uh, instances of a White Sox player being divorced with <laughs> might, uh, might be a little bit more emotionally jarring than other teams, ordinary, difficult business decisions. And yeah, I think we heard a little bit about that with Dave Dombrowski too, like as he was being celebrated uh, when the Phillies made the World Series and just talking about like how he's been able to be successful in so many places. And they talk about like the personal touch he brings. And, you know, he's a guy who's probably had to make decisions like that, but between being successful and probably having, uh, or I shouldn't say probably having, but having good people skills, you know, the combination of both winning and being able to deliver bad news with humanity probably makes it a case where like they get over it or they can't, if, if they're the ones railing about it after a week or so and, and not letting the wound heal, that's probably more their fault than anything he's doing. But the White Sox, as you mentioned, are not successful. Yes. They also don't sign premium free agents. So I, there's two reasons for that. One, Jerry Reinsdorf's appetite, but they have allegedly made six, you know, like more than a hundred million dollar contract offers to players and they haven't accepted it. Mm -hmm. Like I have a feeling there's this reputation of major league baseball about the Chicago White Sox that spoke about internally. That's maybe not as well known externally out in the public or people don't want to make mention of it because it could change immediately with depending on how much cash you would have to throw at someone. Again, if the White Sox win this year, then Jose Bray's words don't carry a lot of weight because the clubhouse was able to move on from him. Pedro Grafal in the short term got these guys to believe and they became a family with a new guy running things. Mm -hmm. If they don't win, you're going to see more players leaving the White Sox that are part of this contention core. And we may continue to get more messages like Jose Abreu has mentioned in yeah. future years. Like this could be something that lingers. And yeah. that th I don't think this is something you want to linger. It's not good baseball ops business. And it gets to the, you know, Gar Foreman, John Paxson thing with Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams, where they just look like losers yeah. and everybody's kind of, you know, in, you know, whether directly or indirectly with their actions by not signing by, you know, these, this word of mouth getting around is that like, you know, they're losers. So that's kind of what we're looking at here. So with the, it's high stakes for them, even if they don't really have, you know, even if they might not face consequences for a losing season and you have to assume that they're going to be around until they don't want to be around. It is a big year for them. Just, I, I think reputationally, because they can't rebuild again. I mean, they can rebuild again, right? But nobody's going to trust the rebuild. You know, like nobody's going to have the same faith that the last rebuild had. Where like, yeah, fumigate the whole thing. Uh, we're going to have to uh, just put the tent over it, and uh, you're going to have to live in a hotel for two months while we get rid of the smell. And uh, eventually, you're going to build this thing back up. Like that's that that's how the last rebuild was greeted. But like, if the same guys are doing another kind of teardown or retrenching, retooling of any sort, like. The response to me, why are we going to believe this one? You, you had the last one beautifully set up and you couldn't do it. So it, it is a big year for them, I think, just 
whatever is left of their reputation uh, is going to be decided by what happens this year, I think. My second piece of advice to this show, win White Sox clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> In the short term, just win, baby. <laughs> You're going to need it. Let's, let's not think about what's going to be coming after this season. Uh, before we head to break, uh, a bit of sad news here. Dave Wills, the radio voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, passed away on Sunday at the age of 58. He had been the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays since the 2005 season, but Wills had a very strong Chicago connection. He was the Chicago White Sox pre- and post-game host from 1997 to 2004. He considered himself a die-hard White Sox fan who grew up in Oak Lawn, and he went to Elmhurst College. He was also involved in the UIC baseball program, at one time coaching the baseball team, but then becoming the voice of the baseball program uh, on the radio. And you can just see the outpour on social media especially those from Chicago and across Major League Baseball on the the sudden loss of Dave Wills. And I know that the Tampa Bay Rays community is quite sad. And again, Wills was a diehard Chicago White Sox fan and had strong Chicago connections. You could see a lot of people that have been in the industry, especially in Chicago radio, are heartbroken with the news. Jim, you mentioned on Twitter in an alternate timeline Wills could have replaced John Rooney to be the radio voice of the Chicago White Sox. Yeah, that's what I remember of that that sequence of the White Sox uh, radio job is that like in 2004 or after the 2004 season, before the 2005 season, Wills left for Tampa Bay. And I remember like, you know, having listened to a lot of White Sox radio in those years, uh, just enjoying the work he did on the pregame postgame show, feeling like, wow, this guy is good. You know, we're lucky to have him. We're lucky that he keeps hanging around like year after year. Like it's, it's uh, just, you know, it's a stacked bench basically. Like when he's the backup guy, when he's the guy leading into John Rooney and Ed Farmer, and then John Rooney and Ed Farmer going back to Dave Wills, it's like, uh, you know, that feels like four hours of just airtime being in good hands. And when he got the job at the Rays, like you weren't surprised because like uh, he was talented, you know, everybody had great things to say about him. Um, and, and the way, you know, the, the Rays talked about him, Rays fans talked about him, uh, occasionally checking in on his broadcast when I was on a drive, just, you know, flipping through a Sirius XM, going through the ball game, seeing, you know, if there's anything interesting in here, like a Dave Wills broadcast. I'm like, Oh, glad to hear he's doing well. Like that's kind of how I felt like, you know, checking in with an old friend or just like, you know, you know just, uh, you know, or maybe like an acquaintance where like your Facebook friends with them and you just like, you, you, they post some good news and you say, congratulations. Like that kind of, uh, um, bond you had with him is like knowing him kinda, you know, and, and that, that tie fading a little bit, but being happy when you heard his voice and hearing him do well. But then like John Rooney left after the year, uh, in 2005, like, you know, his last call was, uh, you know, the world series win. Then he left for St. Louis and you realize like, Oh man, if Dave Wills could have hung on for, if the White Sox could have held on to him for one more year and they couldn't have held on to him. Uh, you know, if a Rays are offering a job and, you know, we know, guys in the minor league broadcast business in the pre and post game business. And, you know, they're waiting for that opportunity and they can't pick their spots. Like maybe some guy, like a John Rooney can pick his spots and go home to St. Louis. Cause he's accomplished enough, but like guys looking for that big break, uh, they cannot 
pass one up. You know, they have to take it. They have to take that major league job. And so, you know, of course, of course you take the, uh, the Rays job because you can't, you know, even if there is word that John Rooney might leave or the Cardinals job might open up, you can't count on that being there. You have to take the job in hand. Uh, but then when Rooney left, you just realize like, oh man, I just... One more year, like going from John, losing John Rooney would have been a blow regardless, but like going from John Rooney and Ed Farmer to Dave Wills and Ed Farmer would have been, you know, maybe a little bit of transition, maybe still feel a bit of a loss when you don't hear like, and that's a White Sox winner, you know, after the game with Rooney. But eventually, like, you know, the way Wills had such a big voice and a big personality and so many connections, especially in Chicago, like you would have felt equally like comfortable and like, you know, fans of you know who are my age when i got to know john rooney they would get to know dave wills and like it would be the kind of the same relationship so yeah it was just something i thought of often when hearing his voice like man that just you know just if if one you know career decision somewhere down the chain uh prevented that raised job from getting open dave wills might have been you know chicago's voice rather than tampa bay's and that would have been been nice to hear but yeah it's a, it's a shame 58 years old only 58 you know, had you know probably at least you know a decade, two decades of broadcasting from, mm -hmm. you know, he had kind of one of those approaches that could have lasted forever if you wanted to do it. So it is really uh, a loss. You did get an opportunity to call a couple world series with the Tampa Bay Rays. And he had to leave the team late in the 2022 season where the team was in Toronto for health reasons, but he was able to rejoin the Rays for the postseason. Again, Dave Wills passes away at the age of, of 58 years old, a diehard White Sox fan that became the radio voice of the Tampa Bay Rays since the 2005 season. Jim and I will take a quick break, but let's continue our deep dive previews into the position groups preparing for the 2023 season. We'll start with the first base position next on the Sox Machine Podcast. Kick off the new year with new gear built to last. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered from the sun to the slopes with premium polarized shades, customable snow glasses, and much more. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's just as good as any expensive pair you've worn. Durable frames and extremely clear optics for outdoor adventures. And that's not all. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they told us they will send you a brand new pair. No questions asked. Wear your Shady Rays with confidence because they have your back long after you purchase. With Shady Rays, you can look good and feel good. To date, they have donated over 20 million meals to fight hunger with Feeding America. If you don't love them, exchange them for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Their team always has your back. I actually have three pairs from Shady Rays because they just look awesome and I'm very picky about my sunglasses. Sometimes I like to match my sunglasses with my outfit. I can be that way. And exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out their best deal of the new year. Go to ShadyRays.com and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE for 50% off two pairs of polarized sunglasses. Again, that's ShadyRays.com, promo code SOCKSMACHINE. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. And as I mentioned earlier, now is time for us to shift gears and do more of our position previews as we get ready for the 2023 season. We'll be tackling the first and third base positions in the previews here in the podcast. And we're going to start with first base. We had the conversation about the ex-first baseman 
Jose Abreu. Let's talk about who is going to be his primary replacement, and that is Andrew Vaughn. And for Andrew Vaughn on fan graphs, I've noticed that his projections have been updated both in depth charts and zips. And I think for those, especially looking at the counting stats, we'll be happier to see that the depth chart projections have Andrew Vaughn at 26 home runs with 81 RBIs, a slash line at 265, a 331 on base percentage, and slugging 467 with a 2.6 war. Zips is higher on Vaughn with 28 homers, 82 RBIs, a 482 slugging percentage, and a 2.8 war for the 2023 season. And you mentioned where Jose Abreu was at 15 home runs last year in 2022. It just looked, especially in the counting stats, Jim, that Abreu took a step back from what we have been used to with the 100 RBI plus seasons and hitting 25 to 30 home runs in a season. He just counting counting stats wise, he just took a step back. And now here's Andrew Vaughn in his third season in the major leagues. And when he was drafted third overall, we all thought, all right, he is next in line to this lineage at first base. So the main storyline for Vaughn going into this season, Jim, do you Mm -hmm. think Vaughn is ready to take the torch at first base? I think ready enough in terms of being the, you know, not only the, like a fixture at first base, but like the heart of the lineup. I don't think he's quite that. I think that's more of uh, Eloy Jimenez's uh, role in terms of being that, 30 plus homer guy that 100 plus RBI the guy that you know potential all-star uh just guy you, you you when you see him in the on deck circle teams are trying to figure out like oh god what do we do like i think he's supposed to be that guy but when you look at first base overall like around the league like one thing that jumped out to me was that uh, Vaughn and uh, Abreu on fan graphs are projected on their depth charts are projected to have the same weighted on base average uh, 346 apiece so they're kind of in the same neighborhood, and that you know is another reason why, like you know, the White Sox had a business decision to make with going from you know Abreu to Vaughn. Is like their own projections might have said something similar to where like we're we're paying, you know, why pay seventeen twenty million dollars for Abreu services when we have Abreu at home, <laughs> like or a new Abreu here uh, making league minimum for one more year. So uh, there's that. But you look at the rest of the league. And it seems like half the league is kind of either improvising at first base or mixing and matching or breaking guys in. Like some guys are interesting, like, you know, Vinny Pasquantino or, you know, Tristan uh, Casas. But like, you know, they aren't fixtures yet. They could, you know, like Casas could flame out like Bobby Dahlbeck did. Like, you know, it's, you know, there are no great bets down the line. Like Alex Kirloff looks like he might be getting some reps at first base for the twins. Like you have Josh Bell and Josh Naylor at first base for the guardians. Like a lot of positions uh, or a lot of uh, first base uh, positions are up in the air for a lot of teams. So I think the white Sox are doing well enough at first base to make the decision they did. It's just a matter of like, it's going to take a village, I think to get this offense uh, back to where it needs to be in order to, uh, to topple the guardians. And I know Andrew Vaughn is trying to say the right things that, his goal is just to be himself. And if he can play his game, that should be good enough. And we speak about the lineage and there's a, we, we poke holes at the white Sox and we point out a lot of things over the years that they just can't fix as far as the position. Like right field has been a problem. Second base has been a problem. First base has not been a problem for most of our lifetime, Jim, Mm -hmm. as White Sox fans. I mean, you go from a Hall of Famer in Frank Thomas, then you go over to Paul Konerko, 
And then from Conurco, you go to Jose Abreu. I mean, White Sox fans have been kind of spoiled when it comes to first base for the most of it. You have not had to worry about that type of position. And with Vaughn in his first two years, we, we've talked about it a lot, that him playing defense in the outfield out of position has just cratered his overall numbers. And if you want to buy that him playing the outfield has hurt his bat, okay. Uh, I, I don't buy that theory as much. And we'll talk about what I think has been more problematic for Andrew Vaughn. Mm-hmm. But he's been rushed. He's been thrown into the mix. And here he is in year three. And he is the starter at first base. And ready or not, you got to take the torch. Mm-hmm. And if he plays like he has the first two years, and if that's Andrew Vaughn, then I'm sorry to be harsh, but Andrew, you are not good enough <laughs> to take the torch at first base if you're going to be a 17 home run, 70 RBI kind of guy. No, you you need a little bit more offensive punch from that particular position, especially with what we've been used to as White Sox fans over the decades. Can Vaughn get to that type of level performance from Thomas Canerco and Abreu? I think so, and we'll get into that in a moment. But yeah, this is a this is a pretty big year for Andrew Vaughn. And again, a big year for the White Sox because after this year, Andrew Vaughn goes into arbitration. So he becomes more expensive year after year after this 2023 season. Yeah, it's about going from surviving to thriving, basically, when when you look at his Good season. Good way to put it. Um, you know, Dan Simborski talking about Vaughn and talking about the way he was, you know, rushed to the majors, you know, at 23, like he wasn't rushed in terms of age, but he was rushed in terms of just like the way the, the, the point in his career where the pandemic hit and not having any high Myers experience and kind of going like, Oh, is 15 homers good enough is a 50 to 70 to 80 RBI is good enough. You know, like having that conversation, he brought to mind Ben Grieve and how like Ben Grieve was, he was a guy who was like 20, I think when he broke in with the A's one rookie of the year, but just never developed like the plate discipline to be anything more than a guy who could crush mistakes. And uh, Dan looked at him and said like, hey, it's, he could have used more, looking at his career, like he could have used a little bit more time tightening up parts of his game. And Vaughn's the same way. Um, I guess the encouraging part is that when you look at what he's done early in spring, it looks like his, uh, you know, he's worked on, you know, some hand positioning, some stance work, trying to get more lift. Like he's the line drives have been nice, like lifting the ball, not rolling over so much to the left side has been good. And when you mentioned the outfield stuff uh, and, and whether that hurt his value, I don't necessarily think it's outfield as much as it's legs. Um, and, and whether the legs were the reason or the outfield was the reason why he didn't have legs. Like he was on that, you know, can't run list or he was on the after three games he gets tired uh is that like a case where like he can't play the outfield is a case where he's like playing through something and the white Sox are just uh, another one where they're misreporting it mishandling it like there's so many guys who are like that and we'll talk about another one uh later in the show but i wouldn't necessarily necessarily say outfield but just like general handling could be the reason why like his numbers have been unremarkable and he's been rolling over so much and the power hasn't quite been there, especially like the opposite field power, combine that with the baseball uh, uh, being deader, going to right field for right-handed hitters, uh, just being a, a thing that punishes him doubly. And you can just come away unimpressed with his body of work. But if he does, you know, take another off season and with new hitting coaches of, getting over, you know, kind of the self-imposed rollover problems. And then you get into a program, both physically and just 
deployment to where like he has his legs, his base under him more often. Like I can see the season that, you know, was delayed, but ultimately not denied and that he looks like a number three overall pick, maybe not like an all-star or like a um, guy who's going to get MVP votes, but given the hit rates of, or I should say miss rate of top 10 picks, like I can see him producing and be like, yeah, he was a fine use of the number three pick. Maybe not the best use, but a good enough pick. You have to run when you put the ball in play and when you're at first base. That's why I'm not buying the outfield is impacting his legs. He's, he's going to have to move playing first base. So uh, hopefully that's still not the case. Yeah. One thing that Vaughn has to improve upon in 2022, I'm going to start here because this is what I think is the greatest impact to Andrew Vaughn's numbers. Andrew Vaughn's going to see a lot of right-handed pitching in 2023. The projected starters in the American league, according to fan crafts, depth charts and from the roster resource 72 percent of the starting pitchers in the american league are right-handed so vaughn's gonna see a lot of right-handed pitching and in 2022 against sliders Mm -hmm. vaughn saw that pitch more from right-handed pitchers than fastballs and that is concerning because when you look at the data, you can see in how the league is learning from Andrew Vaughn and what type of book they're starting to establish attacking Andrew Vaughn. And the thing is, in 2022, he hit the slider better than he did in his rookie year. But the problem is that he faced he saw a slider one-third of the time against right-handed pitchers and where he has an average exit velocity of 95 miles per hour against four-seam fastballs, which is awesome. And his whiff rate is below 14%. That's awesome. And he hits 309 against four receivers, and he slugs mm-hmm. 543. All awesome. That is where the damage is coming from Andrew Vaughn. He sees four-seamer. He crushes you. That has not been any different since I was watching him in his junior year at Cal leading up to the Major League Baseball draft. I don't know why anyone throws him a four-seam fastball. That's how he hurts you. But compared to the slider... He whiffs 31% of the time. His batting average against sliders Mm -hmm. from righties is 188. His slugging percentage is below 300 against right-handers. Only Javier Baez was the worst hitter, according to run value on Baseball Savant, against sliders from right-handed pitchers than Andrew Vaughn. That is not company you want to be in. So you mentioned the hand position change, the stance change, and I noticed the same thing in spring training. And that's what I'm hoping to see early in this upcoming Major League season is how is Andrew Vaughn adjusting against the slider? Because when I broke it down even more in baseball savant, pitchers got so confident against Andrew Vaughn, Jim, later in the season that they would spin sliders in the first pitch and the second pitch and the third pitch. Vaughn would not see a four-seam fastball until he was ahead in the count. But if he swung at any of these sliders and he got himself behind the count, they would just slider him to death. And this is the one thing that I think he has to improve upon because if he can lay off the slider or if he's more successful Mm -hmm. against the slider in 2023, we could see a completely different type of season from Andrew Vaughn this year where he takes that gigantic step forward that all the Andrew Vaughn believers will say, see, I told you he had it in him, but I think it is this particular pitch because this is one of the 
biggest pieces of the pie that he's going to see when it comes to pitch distribution thrown at him, especially early in 2023. Yeah, I knew you were going to cover the Andrew Vaughn slider stuff as well as Andrew Vaughn covers the fastball. So I'm going to steer (laughs) away from that and say my biggest concern or thing that he has to work on is... Can you hazard a guess about what his OPS is in the final month of the season in his career for September, October? Does it start with the five? No. Oh, it's higher. No. Oh, no. <laughs> 483. So he's just running out of gas. Yeah. So like to go back to the leg thing and, you know, just his his base, like I want to see a full six month season from him. Like, yeah, I could see ebbs and flows and, you know, hot and cold streaks and maybe some weeks where he's not hundred percent, but I would like to see him be close to hundred percent by the end of the season and uh, not just look uh, like drained, which he has over the last two years, back problems, leg problems, et cetera. Hopefully, you know, we, we talked about this with like Car- uh, Carlos Rodon, uh, that it took him a while to figure out a five day routine for a six month season And I have the same fears about Andrew Vaughn, the way they brought him up, and he's kind of had to figure that out on the fly. So hopefully this year is the year that he's ready to go the distance because that last month has just killed him. They can't have it. The White Sox can't have Andrew Vaughn running out of gas in September, especially if this is going to be a tightly contested race in the American League Central. So that's a good data find, Jim. I did not know that it was that bad at the end of the season for Andrew Vaughn and yeah, again, it might be, might be part of his player development that he's learning on how to try to play a full regular season in the major leagues and never getting a chance to do that in the minor leagues. So let's go to the over-under here as we wrap up a preview on Andrew Vaughn. And I'm putting the over-under at 80.5 RBIs for Andrew Vaughn in 2023. The projection systems are hovering around the 80.5 RBI mark. This would be a new career high, single-season high, for Andrew Vaughn, if he hit 80 RBIs, are you taking the over or under 80 and a half, Jim? I'm going to say the over, like not by a whole lot. I don't think it was a good number. I had to think a lot about it, but I can see him getting the opportunities and I can see him avoiding strikeouts well enough to get a lot of cheap RBIs the way Jose Abreu did. Like Abreu's skill is not necessarily being the clutchest hitter of all time but not letting a lot of RBI opportunities go to waste. And I think Vaughn could have the same skills to where like, you know, it's maybe an unimpressive ground out to second base, but with the runner on third and the third inning where the infield's not playing in, it gets the job done well enough. And, you know, it's, it's, it's another uh, run in the column for him. So I'm going to say over, like it feels like 90 is within reach. The numbers that I keep putting in my head as far as the county numbers is 20 home runs and 82 RBIs for Andrew Vaughn. So I'm going to take the over on the RBIs. What's going to change my mind completely, especially in the first couple of months, if if Andrew Vaughn is finding a lot more success against sliders, especially against right-handed pitching in April and May. Because if he is, and he's doing some damage against that particular pitch and the adjustments that he's made during spring training carry over to the regular season, and if they are working, then we could see a completely different season where he just crushes all of his projections and Again, he meets the dreams that everybody had that he is the next 30 home run, 100 RBI first baseman for the Chicago White Sox. But 
he needs to conquer this particular problem against right-handed pitching uh, with the sliders coming at him to start the 2023 season. But we both have the over for Andrew Vaughn on 80 and a half RBIs. Let's talk about his backups. So we'll start with Gavin Sheets first. Depth charts for Fangraphs sees 11 home runs, 36 RBIs from Gavin Sheets, not getting that much playing time worth half a war. Zips, if you give him more than 100 games, Zips is projecting 18 home runs and 63 RBI, so not huge numbers from Gavin Sheets. The main storyline, and this is just fascinating mm-hmm. to me, at home, Gavin Sheets is a monster. A monster at home. He hits 290 with a 353 on base percentage, and he slugs 610 at guarantee rate field with 22 home runs in 88 games. Away from guarantee rate field, Sheets hits 201 with a 257 on base percentage. He slugs 281, and he only has four home runs and 25 RBIs in 90 games. Is this the year Gavin Sheets learns how to hit away from guarantee rate field, Jim? I think he's the best example the White Sox have, and they don't really have a whole lot of examples of left-handed power, but of the way guaranteed rate field benefits left-handed power between just the uh, relatively cozy dimensions and also the way the ball just seems to carry and carry and carry into the craft cave, into the Miller Lite landing around the pole into section 108. Like it just, we've seen other teams have those guys that hit those homers. And I think Sheets is the closest thing because when you look at the way he uh, makes contact, like the thing that surprised me, he's a big guy. You know, sometimes his uh, contact looks impressive, but when you look at the stat cast data, he does not hit the ball that hard. Like when you look at his like percentiles, like it's 42nd percentile in average exit velocity, 59th percentile for max exit velocity. So like even at his best, he's not hitting the ball that hard. And then 27th percentile in hard hit rate. So he doesn't really sting the ball. He just happens to get some good lift on it. Like his, his fly ball rate's okay. And he also gets by on like beating the shift to the left side uh, with only one infielder there, whether it's, uh, you know, down the line or like where the shortstop usually plays, like he's been able to um, fill in his batting average with those kind of singles. But when it comes to like hitting the ball hard, he doesn't really do that. And so, you know, at guaranteed right field, some of his backspin late and fly balls that maybe travel 350 feet, like they're good enough. Whereas like a Kauffman Stadium, maybe they wouldn't be in, in, in other parks like that. So that to me is, um, you know, part of its luck, part of it's just distribution, maybe some, you know, People are better at hitting at home where there's a natural tendency to have some home field advantage just because of all the benefits of, you know, playing where you live. But also I think there's an element of just being on that, that borderline of having enough power. When you look at it, like his stats, like, you know, 26 homers or so over the, a full season's worth of plate appearances for his career. Like those are decent home run numbers. They just happen to be like incredibly, home loaded to the point where just like, yeah, maybe just this, this weird line he's riding of just having enough power for certain situations. And the certain situation he most benefits from is the one he sees the most, which is like half the season uh, worth of games and anywhere else he wouldn't be anything remarkable. I just 22 home runs in 88 games. I guarantee rate field, like a home run every four games you play there. I mean, if he was an everyday starter, Okay, that's 20 home runs <laughs> just at home games. Yeah. 
And if you get hit 10 on the road, there you go. That's the other 30 home run guy the White Sox need. But he's so bad on the road. It's just fascinating. So the one thing that Sheets has to improve upon in 2023, mine real quick, he needs to learn how to hit on the road. Okay. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I've never heard of a home away platoon type of position sharing here, but it would make sense with Gavin Sheets. He's got to figure out how to hit away from Gary T. Ray Field if he's going to have any staying power in the major leagues. Is there anything else that you notice, Jim, that Sheets has to improve upon in 2023? Yeah, it goes along the lines of hitting the ball hard. But, you know, one of the things I wrote about recently was that Gavin Sheets, um, you know, one of the things that made him passable as an offensive player and like, you know, his his RBI percentage is pretty good when it comes to driving and runs and being uh, somebody that played in big situations. He does have that ability to have that inside out swing to where like if the in if an infield is presenting him the opportunity to get on base or knock in a cheap run like he can do it. He can. Uh, you know, a lot of times he can just like bring the hands in, doink it to left field and be fine with an ordinary grounder going through. And with the shift being restricted now and him facing two infielders on the left side, most of the time, maybe there'll be some situations where like guys will play at the very uh, second base most side of shortstop and run over to the second base position as the pitch is being thrown. Uh, so he doesn't actually face a second infielder on the left side as the contact's being made. But if he's getting played relatively straight away, that door might close for him, uh, which could be fine if he's you know comfortable pulling the ball on the ground and feeling like there are more hits available to him there. But oftentimes watching him, I had the impression of like, oh, they allowed him to kick out of the pin. Like they had him on a two count and then they you know, threw him a, a slider that kind of spun in the inside half. There's only one infielder on the left side. He could just bring the hands in and, and kind of get the you know, handle of the barrel, not having the barrel, but the handle of the bat uh, to the ball and just you know, muscle it through the shortstop position that's vacated and get on base when he should have been out. And if that opportunity is close for him, then well, he has to focus more on just ripping the ball to the right side. If that's there for him, can he do that? Like we haven't really seen that. And part of his profile coming up in the minor leagues was that he was more of a well-rounded hitter, not the classic power threat. And with his lack of speed and first base only profile, like how much will that get him? And so now I think it's going to be put under the magnifying glass a little bit with like how much power can he tap into now that um, the cheap single is taken away from him a little bit. So let's go to the over-under. And the over-under for Gavin Sheets, I have 60 and a half. And that's the number of games that Gavin Sheets plays in 2023. Jim, I am struggling with trying to identify exactly what Gavin Sheets' role is going to be, at least early, with the 2023 Chicago White Sox, are you taking the over or under 60 and a half games played by Gavin Sheets this season? I'm taking the over because he didn't say starts. Right. I can see bench opportunities, you know, needing some left-handed power, uh, especially, you know, if they bring in a parade of right-handed pitchers to get guys out. Like, And then there's like a, a case where like, if Oscar Colas isn't ready, if Eloy Jimenez gets hurt again, if Andrew Vaughn, gets hurt again. Like there are a lot of ways for him to get playing time. And one of Sheets' biggest strengths is that he never gets hurt. It was odd seeing him mentioned in uh, Sports Info Solutions data saying like he's the highest injury risk or like one of the highest injury risks that White Sox have. And I think it's because he throws his body around right field, like just a lot of loud dives. 
they just are bad ideas and they they have thunderous unsuccessful uh, conclusions and you realize like oh he should have done that and he's gonna hurt himself he he's like american made he, he doesn't break down <laughs> like he's just uh you know you, you you pay for rely you know you pay for the quality of an american made product and that's kind of just like he just hits the ground gets back up dusts himself off and he's ready to play again so it's just uh it's he seems solid and so like if other guys are unavailable he'll probably be available the way that you know Jimenez has not proven he can be the way Vaughn has wobbled the way Jake Berger has proven that he can't, you know, he gets banged up in a lot of different ways. Sheets always seems like he's there and all it takes is one injury or one case of Colossus not quite being ready for a prime time yet to where Sheets will get more playing time and maybe more than anybody wants to see. I'm going to go the over as well, but I have a hard time seeing him playing a hundred games in 2023. He might only play half of the games that the White Sox have this year, which it's still going to be a nice trunk, but again, when it comes to the projection models, projecting 13 to 18 home runs, I think that would be a nice addition for someone coming off the bench for the Chicago White Sox overall team home run total. It's just if he could hit like he does at home and guarantee refield just a little bit more on the road, then we I don't think we would be talking about Oscar Colas. I think we'd just be sucking it up when it comes to right field, just dealing with Gavin Sheets because he could rake. Uh, hopefully the whites, hopefully that continues and the white Sox identify that and be like, why is Gavin sheets starting today? Uh, cause he rakes at home. That's why he's, <laughs> that's where he is. We'll bench him when we get back on the road trip yeah. or we can send him down to Good. Charlotte. <laughs> Got to take advantage of right field somehow. Exactly. Uh, the other backup for Andrew Vaughn. And I thought he would be more of the primary backup for Yohan Makata, but I don't think that's the case. And that's Jake Berger. As Jake Berger has been playing a lot of first base in spring training, Fangraph's step charts doesn't see a lot of playing time in 2023 for Jake Berger. That's why it only projects five home runs, 18 RBIs. Zips, if you give Jake Berger 100 starts, is seeing 13 home runs and 48 RBIs. Neither Zips or depth charts on Fangraph's project a more than one war type of season for Jake Berger. So the main storyline coming into this season how will the White Sox handle Jake Berger in 2023, Jim? It seems like we can rule out second base. Uh, yep. <laughs> that is no longer, uh, with the shifts being banned and radical infield alignments being prohibited, like there's no way to hide him there. So that was neat while it lasted. Uh, he's playing a lot of first base. Uh, third base, it seems like if he could play there, he would just because of Yohan Moncada's unreliability, uh, which we'll get to. So, yeah, having seen him at first base, it does seem like he's sliding down the defensive spectrum, and there he is. So uh, there is reason to keep him in the plans just because, you know, as we mentioned, Vaughn, Jimenez, uh, they're general yeah Vaughn isn't I would say unreliable but just like you don't never know like how much how often you're gonna be getting his best with Jimenez you don't know how many games he's gonna play and so between the two of them like if one of them's absent you're gonna have to mix and match at first base at DH uh try to take advantage of those uh matchups and environments as we mentioned with the sheets and so like he's probably the best guy in line to thrive situationally um and so I think that's why they're probably trying to keep him engaged in some way defensively because yeah, third base was really rough and uh, first base seems like it, it's it, but you know, we saw a couple pop-ups 
uh, botched around home plates with him at first base wasn't his fault entirely. Like it was miscommunication all over between third base and the pitcher not getting out of the way. Like uh, he was not alone, but having seen him track pop-ups at second base, like he still has work to do there, uh, even at first. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the one thing that Berger has to prove upon in 2023? We could both agree defense. He's got to get better defensively. Well, I was going to say that, but I would also say like contact. He had the third lowest contact mm-hmm. rates among the White Sox last year with only Sebi Zavala and Romy Gonzalez being worse than Sebi Zavala's backup catcher. Romy Gonzalez was an overmatched rookie who was dealing with tonsillitis and injuries and like sh- shouldn't have gotten like the second base reps he did. So I think Berger, like he's the inverse, I think, of Gavin Sheets. Like Sheets is left-handed, Berger's right-handed. Uh, Sheets can track a fly ball enough to play right field way too much. Uh, Berger has trouble tracking pop-ups. Uh, Sheets has well rounded hitting abilities, but maybe not enough power. Berger has contact issues, but when he hits the ball, he hits the hell out of it. So I think like they're trying to, you know, if you could combine them, you would have a force. Uh, I'm thinking back to the, you know, we get back to the, uh, my favorite combination of players, which would have been Carlos Sanchez. He was Carlos back then. And Micah Johnson, like give um, Micah Johnson, you know, Sanchez's uh, defensive ability. You have a hell of a second baseman. Uh, you have like a really dynamic force, but because you know, Johnson just had uh, iron oven mitts at second base on both hands, like he just couldn't get the job done. And I think the same thing here with like Sheets and Berger, like if you could just combine them, Give Gavin Sheets the ability to have like that 90, I think it was 92nd percentile of, uh, you know, max exit velocity for Berger. Like he can smoke the ball. And if, you know, Sheets had that ability, like you'd have combined the first two picks from that draft and you would have just this, you know, you would be talking about like a Vlad Guerrero type highlights, you know, maybe not Vlad Guerrero type production, but just like, you know, the Statcast nerds going nuts for something he did. Uh, unfortunately you can't. So that's why I think you have to be, uh, it, the White Sox just are trying to make themselves aware of like how they might be able to mix and match if they gets down to the point where Berger has to get some playing time. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So over under nine and a half home runs from Jake Berger in 2023, Jim. Are you taking the over or under? I'm going to say under just because of the, you know, also the inverse of Sheets. Sheets is always healthy. Berger tends to get hurt. And so uh, just I can see playing time, whether it's because he's blocked or because he's just not 100% himself, uh, not being around to get those 10 homers. I agree. I think playing time is going to be a factor in Jake Berger hitting more than 10 home runs in 2023. 
Berger turns 27 years old on April 10th. That is his upcoming birthday. So he's entering the prime of his career. And if he's spending the majority of this upcoming season with the Charlotte Knights and AAA being their first baseman, I'm expecting him to put up insane power numbers yeah. uh, with the Charlotte Knights this upcoming year. But I think this is going to be a lingering question that White Sox fans have. And what exactly are you doing with Jake Berger moving forward? And I know some White Sox fans wonder if a trade could happen. We talked about that in the last podcast episode, just something to monitor in the uh, upcoming months during the 2023 season, especially if Jake Berger rakes as we think he will with the Charlotte Knights this upcoming season. Jim and I will take another quick break for a word from our sponsors, but coming up next, we preview the White Sox third base position group. We'll go back to the Sox machine podcast. All right. So we previewed first base, which was a lot of conversation about Andrew Vaughn and his potential backups at Gavit sheets and Jake Berger. Let's move to the hot corner to third base, which this conversation is mostly featured on Yoan Makata and Yoan Makata is Fangraph's depth charts projections for the full season, 18 home runs, 68 RBIs, a 247 batting average, a 326 on base percentage, slugging 408, but a 2.9 war value for Makata thanks to his very good defense. And Zips is projecting similar numbers for a full season, 16 homers, 63 RBIs, 251 batting average, a 329 on base percentage, slugging 413. And Mikata being a three-war player, one of the few three-war players Zips is projecting over the course of the full season for the Chicago White Sox in 2023. The main storyline for Yoan Mikata coming to this year, Jim, is all about him bouncing back from the 2022 season where he was not very good, especially offensively. And we've been asking what has happened to Yoan Mikata since the 2019 season. Maybe it was the bouncy ball, maybe... COVID is still impacting him over the last couple of seasons. And what has shifted for me is not so much. Can he bounce back? Now it's, can you live up to your contract? Because you're getting 17 million this year and you're going to make 24 million next year. And there's a $25 million contract option for the 2025 season. It's time for Mankata to live up to the expectations we thought that he was going to be rising up to when he signed this contract extension after the 2019 season. So, Jim, can Yohan Mankata bounce back and start living up to his promise and live up to the contract he signed with the White Sox? Seems like he's one of Pedro Griffal's priorities because he is... He's important and maybe not like living up to the contract in terms of... Uh, you know, being an all-star, getting an MVP vote from James Fegan uh, in a rebuilding year. McConaughey deserved that. I still defend yeah, no, he James did, he did Fegan deserve about it. that. No, I, I deserve it too. But just, I, I just like pointing it out. To just, you know, uh, I just like mentioning James. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> uh, when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, that that kind of impact, like I can see him like living up to the contract in a like wins above replacement nerd way. Like, Oh, he got four wins above replacement. That's worth this money on the open value like, or on the open market. Like he was, you know, ultimately worth his contract, but it's not quite satisfying. Like it's not the money. The white Sox thought they were shoring up. They did not think he was going to be like Connor Gillespie at the glove, which is how we've like likened his offense from, 
from 2021. So it will be unsatisfying if he's that kind of four-win player versus like, I think fans would rather see him be like a four-win player who's gets four wins because he's only around for 120 games, but the 120 games he plays are dynamic. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the, the Mancadas we're talking about. Is he going to be somebody who has some speed and has some occasional earth shaking power and plays good defense and just might, you know, come up with the occasional leg or, you know, you know, muscle tweak here and there, or is it going to be a guy who just kind of, uh, survives over the course of the season, like gets by with good defense when nobody else is playing good defense and never quite looking over a match against a hitter, but also not looking like he's going to break a game open uh, either. And yeah, he bats sixth or seventh, maybe second uh, once in a while if a couple guys are absent, but just isn't really a fixture in the lineup anywhere. And you just more or less shrug at his existence, which I think is kind of where we're at right now with his you know, last two years. Third basemen who have an OPS below 730 do not get paid 20 plus million dollars a year. So I 100% agree mm -hmm. with you, Jim. If Yohan Makata has got a 725 OPS, but he's worth four war because he's a gold glove nominee at third base for his excellent defense. And people point to that and say, this is why he's getting paid the big bucks. Nope. If that Yohan Mikado was a free agent, he would not be signing for $24 million the following year if he hit that poorly again. And I do say poorly, even though that would be slightly above league average or is expected to be, depending on what type of baseball is thrown out there in 2023. He's, I'm sorry, but he's got to have, with his skill set and the physical tools and the talent that he has, he should have an OPS in the 800s. Like, this is someone that mm -hmm. I was super high with when the White Sox acquired him in the rebuild. He was the star attraction, and we got a taste of that. And, you know, even diving into the, the data, baseball savant, and the well, the, the way that he just demolished fastballs like Andrew Vaughn uh, can demolish fastballs. Like, it just gave you so much hope being one of the exit velocity leaders in Major League Baseball, that superstar Superstardom is coming for Yohan Makata, and man, since 2020, it's like he hit a brick wall uh, in the major leagues. And I am concerned because if he doesn't bounce back in 2023, I don't know if he will ever bounce back. And boy, you don't want someone that struggles to get a 700 OPS and you're paying them $24 million uh, in the 2024 season. Mm -hmm. You can't have it. No team could really handle that in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I kind of watching uh, Jonathan Taves recently or like the last couple seasons, then, you know, he's missing time with long COVID. Like there is that conversation to have, like it's a, or not conversation to have necessarily because it's going to be an uninformed conversation with just how little we know about his condition and just especially going back to the way the White Sox mismanaged injuries. Like he talked about coming back from an oblique issue way too soon. And we seem to see that with his bat speed, like the bat speed was not there. Uh, the bat did not fire through the zone. Um, there was just really nothing on his contact and he looked lifeless and he always looks placid, you know, or most of the time he has a placid demeanor. And when just the physical tools are not delivering, it looks lifeless. And, you know, he looks uninterested. And I don't want to say that he is like that. You know, it's a very meatball thing to say is like, oh, he's, you know, he's mailing it in. I don't think he is. But I think, you know, just the elements are there like where 
even like in his 2019 season, like he was not like a real charismatic force and like, you know, Tim Anderson type that just, you know, uh, demanding the cameras on him with the way he just you know, conducts himself around the field. He, like he's not an electric personality, but the tools are electric. And that's what generates the excitement is just when he, you know, we t- t- I like talking about like when he pulls the ball uh, with such force in the air that he has to like straighten out his helmet because like it just, you know, the, the contact reverberated around the whole stadium, like a minor earthquake. And that just, that ability uh, vanished on him. And so whether that's the uh, oblique or whether that's, you know, the, the, a remnant of the COVID issue that uh, he, you know, we all saw him have in 2020. Like we saw him running the bases and like uh, just you know, looking completely exhausted. And like, that was a very real thing. Uh, now is the, you know, the, the performance of last year. That's, I can't say like, <laughs> I can't say either way. Like, yeah, I want to be open to it because, you know, I think Taves is an example of like somebody who's, talking about a little bit and we've seen him struggle on and off in terms of being uh, somebody to you know, capture his uh, physical game on the ice for stretches of a time. It doesn't help that the black talks have uh, eroded around him. Talent wise are being sold off for parts, but like just the, his energy and effort and strength have not been there on a reliable basis either. So it, it, that's, you know, watching the Taves thing unfold recently, you know, during the trade deadline, in the NHL, did bring you on Makata to mind a little bit in terms of just like, you know, is he not talking about, can he not talk about it between like just not wanting to and the language uh, barrier of just not being as accessible as other players who might be more candidate? Or is it just a case where like, yeah, his oblique was messed up the entire year, his mechanics, you know, there caused a cascade issue of just adjusting his mechanics and not being able to get around on, you know, real good velocity and, his season was a mess. So that's why I'm really interested to see what Pedro Grafal has in mind. Um, you know, what Mike Tozar and just, you know, the, the entire hitting apparatus, uh, the White Sox have, you know, Jose Castro and Chris Johnson, what they have in mind to try to get to this. And should he have another injury issue, uh, like the oblique, will the White Sox get him off the field and say like, rest up for 15 days. We need you at max capacity. We'll get by with, uh, you know, whoever we have on the bench, just get better because we need that bat speed back and we need you to have that power and to have those legs because uh, you're not really anything special without either one. You mentioned the bat speed. That's the one thing that you Makata has to approve upon in 2023. And I'm willing to be hurt, Jim. Okay. I'm willing to be hurt again and be incredibly hopeful that Yohan Makata bounces back mm-hmm. and only for him to rip out my heart and stomp it on the ground. If his OPS is in the 600 still, when the calendar flips into July, I'm willing to be hurt, but without that bat speed, his numbers last year against velocity greater than 94 miles per hour. We talked about this not that long ago was well below 400 OPS OPS below 400 against velocity. So bat speed is incredibly important for you mm-hmm. Mercada because unlike Andrew Vaughn, Pitchers are not afraid of Yohan Mercada in 2022, and they pounded him with four-seam fastballs, and I'm expecting more of the same. And if Mercada can recapture that bat speed while not being so passive at the plate, but maybe that's why he was so passive at the plate is because he didn't have the bat speed. But if he can recapture that bat speed, maybe we'll get the bounce-back season we've been hoping for and more from Yohan Mercada, and that could really spark some more optimism about the White Sox in 2023 if he doesn't have that bat, bat speed gem, man, I don't know what the White Sox do. I guess you just trudge along and 
knowing that you're paying Yohan Mikata $24 million the following year and planning to buy him out for $5 million after the 2024 season. And that would just be such a bummer way to talk about Yohan Mikata's career with the White Sox. Like, this is a pretty big year for Yohan Mikata. It's a, it's a critical year for him personally. I guess slightly reassuring about Mankata is that he's easy to watch as an amateur scout. Like, if he's got it, you know he's got it. If he doesn't have it, you know he doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, when you talk about, you know, go back to you Pedro Grafal talking about like yeah. the White Sox energy level, you know, he might be a case and maybe not, you know, maybe he was mailing it in, but also like, even if he isn't mailing in or just like, it's, it's his effort level isn't a matter of caring. It just might be like, I can't summon the effort. And so like my best is just not good enough right now, but I'm out here anyway because I can play okay defense. Like that's that's kind of how I'm thinking of it. Like it's not necessarily to disparage his character because that's, uh, I think if you're talking about mailing it in, it's a character flaw. Uh, I'm talking more along the lines of just like, does he have it? And fortunately, like watching him, like you can tell. And hopefully you know, if we can tell, they can tell. And if the White Sox are better at handling injuries and physical conditioning and just being aware of how physical conditions are really affecting the product the way that they did not know it with Moncado, with Larry Garcia, with Luis Robert, letting go with the bat with the wrong hand. Like there are so many cases of the White Sox mishandling injuries in ways that were so plainly visible to people who don't really know anything about swing mechanics or, you know, 40, you know, or, or I shouldn't say 40, like 60 times uh, down the line. Like, you can see it. And with Mankata, like you can see it. So that's kind of nice. So let's go to the over under and I have slated at three war. So kind of the same conversation we had about Andrew Benatendi with his massive deal. Can Benatendi get over under three war? I'm putting that same number on Yohan Mankata. Do you have over or under three war for Yohan Mankata in the upcoming season? I have over just because of the defense. Um, I think it's going to be, you go back to the, the, the question about like production the question is going to be whether it's a fun version of like three wins, because like mm-hmm. he was a four war player in 2021. And we saw uh penals going to the mat about Yohan Makata's value on Twitter, because like he, he was valuable. Like he served a purpose, but it wasn't fun. Like it was useful, not fun. And so that to me, that's, you know, the, the question is not, you know, I mean, it's obviously a question if he gets to get to three wins above replacement because he didn't do it last year. And it could be a case where like his body doesn't hold up. But I think if he does clear that number, the question is, was it fun or was it just like a workman like 3.5 is the bigger question to me. So I'm going to say over. You and Mikata is the one player one of the few players the White Sox have that if he plays 140 plus games and if he bounces back offensively, three wars way short mm-hmm. on Yoan Makata. Like we're talking five plus war type of player that Yoan Makata could be. So I think for me, when I'm looking at this over under, it's how many games is Yoan Makata playing? Because if he plays 140 games because of his defense, he should get to three plus war for the season, even if his OPS is 725 and most of that OPS is his on-base percentage as he as he draws more walks. I'm going to say over, and I'm open to myself again to be heartbroken about Yohan Mikata if he does not perform well. If it's under, it's because the bat speed doesn't return. 
and the bat speed doesn't return for XYZ reasons. Maybe all of them due to some type of various health issues that he's going through, but it doesn't prevent him from manning third base for the Chicago White Sox. But he is one of these players in the team, one of the mm-hmm. few players that they have that could have a five plus war season for the Chicago White Sox. He just needs to hit in order to do it. And if he can have his OPS at 800 or above again, and if he's someone that can, you know, hit 20, 25 home runs for the White Sox, shoot, he could maybe be in talks of like all-star conversations or maybe receive another 10th place MVP vote. <laughs> this will be nice. James will give him knives. Uh, <laughs> no, I think you have to be open to having your heart broken by Moncada just because of that upside and like all the things he theoretically could give the White Sox that they don't have. Defense, left-handed bats, mm-hmm. speed, even though it doesn't show up in stolen bases. And, you know, if he's healthy, it might show up in more stolen bases because of the new rules. Um, but even if not stolen bases, base running ability, the ability to go from first to third and from second to home and from first to home, like he has that. Um, so like the unique uh, package of skills gives the White Sox lineup, like, you know, I think he's their biggest injection of upside if they have one, like they don't know if they're going to get it, but like, you know, we know what Jimenez can do and we hope that he hits 30 homers and drives in hundred and with all the numbers that go along with it. But we know his defense isn't going to be good. We know that he's going to be righty when they could use another lefty. And so, like, you know, he's got a certain ceiling to his overall value. With Mankata, like, his ceiling of overall value is really, really high, especially relative to the rest of the roster. It's just the, you know, high risk, high reward. And the risk is just, like, the risk is that, as you mentioned, getting paid $17 million, getting paid $24 million for a guy who is, like, kind of Todd Frazier. Defense and the occasional, you know, the the lopsided offense like in Frazier's case he could hit 40 homers but it was like the uh saddest 40 homers he made not well I shouldn't say saddest because Adam Dunn did it too but just like 40 homers but also a lot of pop-ups that just killed you and I think about kind of the same way like uh he'll play good defense and provide some on-base uh value but like otherwise like nothing's really there and Todd Frazier gets like 10 million for one year contract on the market from a team that really needs something. And, uh, you know, like Moncada's getting 17 and 24 and for a team that's at the top of its alleged payroll limit. So that's the discussion we're having here. So looking at the backup options at third base for the Chicago White Sox, it's a random collection of players. It looks like a paper, nobody clear cut, but you got Hanser Alberto, who's been getting some run in spring training for the White Sox, Romy Gonzalez, Lurie Garcia, maybe Jake Berger, but I'm not so confident in his ability playing third base in the major leagues again for the White Sox. And Lenin Sosa, out of those options, Jim, if Yohan Mercado were to get hurt and punch a hole through a wooden object that, that does not happen during spring training, but if Mercado's not available, who do you like out of that collection or maybe someone else that I haven't mentioned to be the immediate backup for Yohan Mercado at third base? I think, you know, now that Elvis Andrews is playing second base and you hope that Anderson's able to play more than uh, two-thirds of the season and not leave so many starts available at shortstop, but if the two of them can lock down the middle infield, I think that, you know, the hopes that we had for Lenin Sosa getting a little bit more time to shore up his game and, and build on the, the incredible gains he made last year, 
I'm hoping that would pay off with some some moments at third base. Maybe not like you know a an above average third baseman, but somebody who uh, you know keeps the project afloat. Um, Romy Gonzalez also, I think, like if he's truly having the off season and the work and the progress that the White Sox have said he's made, and it's not just that he lives in Miami and he lives so close to all the White Sox hitting coaches and they've just seen so much of him and seen his desire that they want him to do well. They're speaking more from their hearts than their heads. Probably back up at third base may be the most value he can provide on the field. Um, just being, cause he has like these, the skills, like he has the arm, he has the, uh, you know, he can cover shortstop so he can play third. Like he should be able to hold down a job there. So I think between the two of them, I think I like it the most. I just don't want to see either of them until like June. <laughs> so you hope that Mankata, you know, should he have to miss some time, uh, he buys them some time to finish up their developments or, you know, allow Sosa to get a couple hundred at bats at, uh, you know, Charlotte to finish what he's doing uh, and, and, you know, force him to force the issue. Or Gonzalez, you know, if he's going to be on the bench, like proving the White Sox correct for having the faith in him before he's needed to, Hold down a what what turns out to be a key offensive position because third base is pretty talented. Well, that will do it for that position preview for the first base and third base for the Chicago White Sox. Thank you guys for listening to us as we take a deep dive. The next position preview that we'll have next week is the middle infield for the Chicago White Sox. Take it a look at second base and shortstop. So much longer conversation about Tim Anderson, a longer conversation about Elvis Andrews, and of course all of the backup options that the White Sox have in the middle infield. So that's something to look forward to in an upcoming episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. We also upload our podcasts into our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Machine which you can describe there for all the videos that we post. Uh, and also now shorts, if you haven't noticed, we're starting to go into the shorts business, doing some YouTube reels, some Instagram reels, playing along with <laughs> Video that. shorts, not actual not, shorts. It's not shorts weather yet. I mean, it, it might be 60 degrees <laughs> in Chicago on Monday, but it might be 35 degrees later in the week. So it's not quite shorts weather yet, but we're doing some short videos on YouTube and Instagram. And you can also follow us on Instagram, we are at Socks Machine. If you enjoy our work and want more, you can get more by signing up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And when we have new Socks Machine swag in the Socks Machine store, they're the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching.